Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is actually Alex Collins back on the Potshot podcast after Woo! a while away. And yeah, I'm very, very happy to be here with two of my favorite people. And I've actually missed both of you a lot. It was, it was, yeah, it was very nice to see Seb's face coming back on, on the pod on Zoom after a while away. And then Manus shortly joined us. Um, how are both of you guys? I'm good. I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Sorry, I know that the the tradition is actually started with the podcast question rather than ask how you guys are, but you know, it's just a sign of how long it's been <laughs> since you've been on this. <laughs> I'm working my way back in. I'm work, and you guys have put me on host duty from the start, which is to be fair because I'm the only one who has not watched either of the matches back. But I hope I've paid enough attention at the time, and both of you guys have done. Yeah, some good watching back. I'm looking through the doc prepared by Manus, and yeah, it looks like we have a good pod. Um, yeah, lined up for us. But before we get to that, let's do the pot shot question, which is maybe one aimed at, I feel like, mostly humbling me on my return, looking at some of the worst Arsenal takes, but also the best Arsenal takes. So footballing takes relating to the current Arsenal players that we do have to give our best and our worst take. I'm going to start with you, actually, Manus, because you came up with the question. So I think you want to get something off your chest. What is your best Arsenal take? Oh... I don't even know. With the current current Arsenal players, I don't even know. I have a, I have a few worst ones. I'll go with the worst <laughs> one first. I think my worst one has to be relating to Havertz because I thought that he was the missing piece at left eight and that has not turned out very well for us so far. Somewhere Lorcan is smiling. Mm. I'm actually surprised at how easily you've been willing to give to give up on that take. I, can see is, I, I think at this point, Manus is by far <laughs> the most pessimistic on Havertz. It's, it's an interesting how, evolution. How happy yeah. I was in the start of the season when I was fighting Lorcan on this podcast that no, 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 he's yeah. not going to play. And like it's it's like it's not planned out very well for me. You know what, Manus? I'm disappointed because no one hates Lorcan being more right than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so for you to give up on your on your battle so early, I'm a bit disappointed. But but yeah, let's go for what your potential best take is. Anyone that you're thinking of? Ooh, I don't know if I've had a take which has actually been right. A good take. Or a good take. That's what we got here at Pot Shots. <laughs> I think in, in general, uh not against a like not particularly about any player, I think in general about this squad. Uh, and the vision that Arteta had. I think that's panned out to be my best take across the four years that he's that he's been here. Like I when his first game, I remember when like we played four two three one and Ozil started as a number ten. Uh that was the point when I was like talking about how his vision was going to be to like playing two mm. eights. When we signed William, I thought that was the point that we would start going for two eights, but no, I was like Two years I also thought William was going to be an eights, low-key. I don't know if that's what you were suggesting, but I also thought William was, might be one of our eights. Fucking and no. I think it would have worked, and I stand by that. But yeah, Seb, I know you have lots of bad takes and some good ones, so, so let's hear them. It's hard to remember my takes, but uh, I suppose two <laughs> that I quite like, personally. Uh, one's quite topical, and that's... I was one of those guys who wanted Jorginho over Thomas Partey in the summer of 2020. 2020. Um, That's aged beautifully. That I, yeah, and it would have saved us from another three years of Chelsea fans gaslighting us into thinking Jorginho isn't good. And the other one isn't about an Arsenal player, but it's one I still 
quite heavily believe in it that we've dodged a massive fucking bullet by not signing McCallum or Drake. I know we've oh, had the Mudrick wars in the group chat, and I know you're still quite <laughs> high on him, but I think it's no surprise that he just doesn't play for Chelsea anymore. This is one, before we get to your bad take, this is my thing on Mudrick, is also when he signed for Chelsea, I did say, and I tweeted at the time, that I think it's a bad move for him. I was very high on Mudrick coming here, and I still do think he's someone with all the tools, definitely raw. I also said he wasn't going to come in and start ahead of Martinelli, as I think lots of people did because of the... The rumored prices, um, but yeah, I'm still a Mudrick fan, and uh, I'm not ready to call that a bad take as of yet. But yeah, Seb, your bad take before I, I unload both of mine. <laughs> I've thought about this hard. I think the one that's probably aged worse is uh, I was one of those guys who, when both were sort of hitting their peak in the start of 2021, I was one of those guys who rated Emil Smith Rowe a bit higher than Bukayo Saka, and and sort of thought hmm. he was the the centerpiece of the team which yeah through one reason or another just never really turned out that way i'm i'm still big on smith Rowe, though i i still feel that he might do yeah something. but i think saying saying he's more talented or better than saka is like just and mm. that's like the take that's going to put you in an insane asylum yeah, yeah, yeah alex is furiously pointing towards his ml smith Rowe shirt in the background <laughs> signed Emil smith Rowe shirt um no but i mean I think I'm actually share a bit with you on the on the Saka take. I always thought Saka was gonna be a very good player. I thought he was gonna be, you know, part of us doing well. I didn't I never thought he was gonna be the superstar that he was going to be. I remember when he was coming through at left back, I thought this is the best position for him as like a Yeah, that's what I thought when he kind of broke into the team. Um I'm very happy to have Where been were involved. you on the Brenton Williams debate? Oh no! Obviously, way better than Brandon. I thought he would. I thought Saka could be like the behind at the time. Bonzo Davies, the yeah, second yeah. best left yeah. back in the world. So that's why I thought he could be a top level winger, but like the ceiling much higher at left back. Happy to have been wrong about that. And yeah, he is far defied like what I thought he could be, and I'm I'm very happy to be wrong there. I think my best take, at, at least relating to the current Arsenal players that I can think of that comes to mind is, yeah, even when Saliba was, and I'm generally pretty cautious about actually projecting, making these sort of big projections, but I remember when Saliba was 18 or so, still at Saint-Étienne, I, I was like, this guy can be the best centre-back in the world. Like, I think he will be the best centre-back in the world, is actually what I said. And it actually happened a lot sooner than it, it, I thought it would, because I think he is the best centre-back in the world currently. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a proud take that I've definitely shamelessly retweeted a couple too many times at this point. <laughs> but on that note, guys, I'm, I'm let's still, get into... I'm still extremely interested that at the point that Saliba returned to Arsenal, there was still sort of this skepticism around him and sort of if he's going to dislodge Ben White as the right centre-back in the team and stuff like that. And that was after his Marseille loan. Yeah, I think it also had to do with Arteta at the time. There was still like yeah. a, a lot of scepticism yeah. over whether he'd give him a chance. I mean, we could, this is a... Debate for another pod, I think, because we have a lot to get through. But like, there's still a lot up in the air about whether we handled that loan, the loans well or not, or you know, even the fact that he was left out of the Europa League squad. I don't think we did. I think we got a bit lucky, um, and it did pan out well. The loans were good themselves, but I think the overall handling, yeah, we we can talk about that another time. I I, I think you guys all know my takes on that. I think we're lucky that he's here, and we're lucky that Arteta fucking loves him now but yeah 
let's get into it. Um, what I think we're going to do is really look at the Porto game as also maybe reflecting on the Porto game and our recent run of big wins, obviously, and we added another big win right after the Porto game, but I want to look at those two together, and I think we're going to start with Porto, with Manus taking us through it, who watched and rewatched the game most closely, before we'll move on to Newcastle in the second half of the pod, where Seb, I know you rewatched, and look at all the main talking points, I think, particularly that relate to each other, and looking ahead. Okay, yeah, let's get right into it, obviously, starting with the Porto game. So yeah, this was us back in the Champions League round of 16 after what felt like a century. And where, you know, we do feel like we belong year after year, hopefully also going forward to the quarters. But maybe not the best start in that regard. Having lost 1-0 to what has to be said is, was a very impressive defensive performance from Porto, at least from my perspective. It was like watching that first game that Dijk managed for Everton, where we were just we felt foiled, right? And that's when the doubling up on the wingers started and everything. This very much gave me that same sort of um, impression, at least in terms of how impressed I was by the opposition. At the same time, I don't think Arsenal were at our best. And yeah, the performance can be encapsulated with one stat. We recorded naught shots on target during the entirety of the game. I'm not sure how long since that has happened. But yeah. And then at the end, Porto scored on what can be described as a wonder goal in dying minutes of the game. Uh, it was an exceptional strike, no no doubt about that. But I do think maybe we can look at some of some sloppiness in the lead-ups to that. And then obviously there is a discussion about whether Raya was too far off his line. I know that Manus has put in the notes, no goalkeeper in the world could have saved it. Which so is ironic enough. because well, I was in the <laughs> trenches with him defending Raya on that one. <laughs> so maybe maybe I'm the only skeptic here. Um... But at the end of the day, I will say I do agree that that was the least of the errors in the lead-up. And another Raya error was that clearance. So, so yeah, let's get right into it. Can you take us through through the game um, as you saw it tactically, Manas? I feel that for the Champions League, uh, Arteta could have been a slightly more pragmatic in maybe starting Jorginho for this game. Even though I was on Twitter uh, before the game saying that maybe, you know, it's okay going with an extra attacker. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it could have gone either way. Um, I think the, the actual contrast is basically Jorginho for this game. And we'll, we'll get into that a lot more uh, as we go on to the Newcastle game later. But I felt what we lacked in this game was, again, a, a, a central progressive passer. Uh, which I feel uh, we might need coming forward, going forward. But a, a good way to look at this game is through the opposition's principles rather than ours. Uh, because we played the exact same game that we always do, right? 3-2 in the build-up, we didn't do a 4-2, even though I felt that we should have maybe done a 4-2, uh, but to do a 4-2, we would have required Odegaard staying deeper for longer or uh, starting with an extra, you know, a lesser attacker or maybe an, an extra centimeter. Can I ask why you think 4-2, in terms of how Porto approached the game, why do you think that would have been a good solution in terms of how we dealt with them? Or should have dealt with them. Uh, I think the, so. Porto lined up in a hybrid four-five-one-four-three-three sort of uh, out of possession shape, uh, and what they did, which was particularly impressive, was they played this V V-shaped midfield, uh, where it went from sometimes it was a four-one-four-one, sometimes it was a four-five-one. They basically stopped any progression down the half spaces. And what they also did expertly was 
not allow progression through the wide center backs into the wingers so they so we basically been stifled on our only two channels of progressions given that we can't really go through the center because maybe rice can't receive and turn and there's no particular receiver ahead of him who's who can like hold up the ball and is good uh but again even if he would have done that what they did was not only block lines but whenever any center midfielder would receive the ball they would just press one of one of their midfielders would drop out of the midfield line and press the center midfielder even if it's odegaard it's rice or it's white they would press 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 so when you receive you can't turn or you can't even half turn because it's risky so i think they managed the game in that sense very very well they prepared very well and this shut us down basically so i tweeted at half time that a potential solution could have been to drop the ball side eight ahead of the midfield line and then ghost the full back back try to play that way uh but again like it didn't work at the, the distances between our lines were too wide uh the ball that we didn't move the ball uh in a u shape uh you know the passing speed was too less that's basically what i'm saying the our possession was very slow before i come to seb i also just want to add on to those points there um manas i i mean i was very impressed with that with porter's performance uh, overall i think i saw a couple tweets being like why don't most teams like approach arsenal like this but i think the organization with which they approached the game was was phenomenal so as you spoke about how they pressed the midfield was obviously very intense that's often a solution but what we usually do then is we try to manipulate a little bit more with the center backs but what i really liked well or didn't like cuz it came at the cost of our performance right is that there was a very good sense in their press of when to press onto the center backs and when to let them let them off and i think it it sometimes these things are you know complex sort of like triggers or whatever but sometimes it's just really organized in a team in sync in terms of knowing when to hold kind of what angles to hold at and it kind of it ultimately forced us in having to feed it back into the into both as i saw a lot of the time odogo and rice who for different reasons struggled to to really progress the ball rice because he wasn't able to really access or find angles or find the passes forward just had to kind of move along laterally and pass back and essentially into the maybe across to one of the fullbacks or into the center backs and then Odegaard obviously his little um thing of dropping in to kind of create the extra man he was just chasing as he received the ball there was even the momentum at which he was receiving having to pass back but then the press not necessarily getting over excited and chasing in on the ball and just kind of holding or recognizing the right moments to kind of press onto for example Gabriel or Saliba so so I was very impressed with their performance out of possession overall and I think we could have done maybe better with the spaces and creating angles but it they did make it very difficult for us seb i want to know where you kind of sit on this yeah i completely agree i think what needs to be said is that i think porto had a nice sort of practice exercise in what they did here uh over both games against barcelona in the group stage of the champions league who interesting you know structurally are quite similar to us they also sort of deploy their back three you sort of use similar in possession principles and so on and they sort of did this exact same thing where they keyed their wide players in on those jumps on the wide center backs when they were looking to progress 
And once they did actually get into those half spaces to squeeze in ball side and sort of completely compact that space. And you can only really get out of that if you sort of find intricate combinations to get out the other side. Every time we did try to switch play to the other side, their fullbacks were completely keyed in on jumping on our wingers, really completely negated them throughout most of the game. And their game plan just worked out extremely well. My biggest sort of frustration with the game wasn't as much in sort of an adaption of principles, but rather a structural adaption to sort of buy ourselves more time on the ball. So if we were, we, if we had been, if we had brought in Jorginho for Trossard, for example, we could have then created a sort of 4v3 in their back line and had to make them adapt to it. You could also then have Havertz and Odegaard sort of dropping 10s, 9s to sort of give yourself a 4v3 in the midfield. So at least from a structural point of view, you are then better able to progress through them in their sort of really aggressive mid-block. And my biggest frustration is that we didn't even attempt any structural changes so, uh, at all in at halftime and sort of try to do plan A better rather than sort of find find structural solutions to it. I mean, I, I do think it was interesting that we basically made no changes uh, except for the Jorginho in for Trossard, right? Which, which came, and I think, rather late, right? That was 70 odd It minutes? did come... Yeah, the the way I see that is I think Arteta was actually... If anything, Arteta was kind of comfortable ending the game with a 0-0 and he didn't really want to change up the structure too much or go for go for the win rather right i think he was he was more comfortable and i think it is because we've got to this point now where we did lose one nil in the end right um and now we're going to what i think will be a tough game i think look i back us to win it because i think we're a very strong side and we're at home but i don't think it's as easy or it's this wasn't just a slip up this is quite a big result that we do need to overturn i don't know how you guys feel about it because the way i see it right is and maybe this is kind of coming to to the general discussion that we've we've kind of had, as I know recent weeks, and I've not been on the pod, but at least discussion on the on the timeline and stuff within the, within the fan base is that we're this we're improved so much in terms of open play. And it's particularly with, you know, how we've readjusted Odogo. And I really wish I could be on the pods just to sing his praises, because you guys know how much I love Odogo, and especially when he's used deeper as the, as, as that as that schema, right? But I think it, it is always worth remembering that it's after we go up a goal that we become this incredible open play team. Maybe we're the best team in the world, I could say, once we're a goal ahead. But particularly against teams that are not aiming to hurt us as much as they are aiming to stifle us, to stop us hurting them, we tend to struggle at that equal or even game state. And I think that has been the case. And we've just been going up from corner goals or you know, early that it's really suited us from that position of strength. This was a game where we were frustrated and the team was setting up to frustrate us and we didn't really have that many solutions. I spoke about our struggles and even progressing well in deep build-up, but as Manus was pointing out, there wasn't a lot of space between the lines. We didn't have that extra sort of guile that I think we haven't had it all the season or for most of the season, right? Even if we have improved over the course of it, haven't had that guile comparative to the best other best teams in the world to really break down these teams that are well disciplined and are aiming to thwart us. And I think when it doesn't come from a set piece thing, we look a lot more frustrated, especially as the game goes on. So I think Arteta recognizes that. And that's perhaps maybe why he was kind of comfortable because Porto are quite a formidable team 
with going in nil-nil. And that's sort of why I saw at the time as it that Jorginho change being kind of one that maybe did change things up a little bit to try find a win, but actually still improving us out of possession because I think moving Havertz higher was a good thing. I thought, I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought Trossard was actually the weak link in terms of when they built through us. A lot of those deep regressions were Trossard losing their man, them having the extra man. It was really inactive and out of possession though, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I wonder what you guys kind of make of that. I saw that as, I think maybe we should have made a couple subs. Martinelli was having an awful game. Um, but yeah. In terms of uh, Martinelli and uh, Trossard, I, I just don't think that we access them in good situations enough. And most of the games just played ahead of their mis- like behind the mis- midfield line, right? Behind their midfield line, not the midfield line. Um, I mean, I think in terms of execution, they executed their plan way better. And I think, Alex, you're very right in saying that teams who tend to stifle us, like just break our game. And I think they're... Who, teams who are preparing actively to break our game tend to do better against us. But even then, I mean, we, there should be... Our players should be able to find solutions on the pitch rather than just the manager finding them at half time. There were certain situations where I did feel that Saka could have taken on the his fullback a little bit better. There were situations where I felt he could have received turn and played forward. Um... Obviously, uh, I think in the first half, this game, the way that it game progressed, because they didn't let us progress through the center or the half spaces, when we did progress through the sides and it, and the ball comes back to white or on that side, rice at times, and the switch is on towards Martin Martinelli. I think that's how the game sort of built up for us, that the switches were on. Mm-hmm. But Martinelli is not on the touch line. He's inside on the shoulder of the of the left back, but he should be holding the width at that point. And Havertz should be the one sort of in that space between the, the wide back and the center back. But he's further uh, inside and then Trossard's further inside. And then we did hit the switches. I think we hit four, about four switches in the first half, uh, if I counted right on my rewatch. None of them made it. So Odegaard did the first one. The fullback gets it. And then Rice does one, it goes out. White does one, it goes straight out of play. And there was that one other one, which was just, again, like not hit right. If I can ask, just speaking about the passes themselves, these were a lot of the guys targeted quite heavily in the press. Were these switches made under, no under conditions where, under under no pressure? No pressure on the ball. Um, okay, but like you can't just hold it, set and play. But they were played under no pressure. So it was just again technical okay. execution was off as well. Um, that's what I'm coming to. Like the full the, our wingers could have done better. Some of the players could have tried to turn with the ball uh, and probably just play more positive. Like I know you're being pressed, but just try. We you have like five players behind the ball. Our rest our rest defense is there. So I mean you're safe. So I think it was a game to take more risks. But I can understand from a pragmatic point of view and like knowing our data like he would have like actively going for the nil nil right and in this game so yeah i i mean i think this was something that was purposeful from arteta whether rightly or wrongly that was carried out from the team and being a bit more patient the one thing i do want to focus on manis is we can speak about Mart- i'm interested in speaking about martinelli on this pod for sure particularly comparing newcastle to the to the porto game and, and i think it's been a discussion with 
how much of it is him this season or how much it is how we're using and we're not maximizing on him. And I think that's a conversation that I'd like to have once we've touched on the Newcastle game, right? But I do want to touch on um, Trossard because I disagree with you a little bit in terms of accessing Trossard. I don't think... I don't think it was an issue where I can sympathize and feel that like sometimes we're not accessing Martinelli correctly. I think we were accessing Trossard in areas where I think you would want him to do more damage for the role he was playing. And this isn't necessarily a fault of Trossard's, but it, it did make me when I was watching that game thinking Trossard's been fantastic, right? And I think he's he's the best finisher at the club. And he he gives us that clinical edge that we really don't have and that neatness um on the edge of on on the edge of the box and inside the box. But but I thought it was a game we really missed Gabby J because of that dynamic or dynamism that he has and just that extra physicality ability to kind of receive and, and honestly be a game breaking player. I think it's a different game if we were feeding Gabby J in those deeper areas than if we were feeding Trossard, which I think we did need help in terms of accessing them in those spaces to move the ball further forward against what was quite a physical um, mid block from Port from Porto. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I just don't remember watching Trossard in this game because I think he had like 10 passes and about 20 touches. So I think he wasn't involved a lot. But again, I don't know if it's like, I feel it's an access issue because our midfielders just couldn't pass forward. So when you're receiving, when you're dropping, you can't turn. When your center mid can't turn. And Weiss, does, not Weiss, White isn't that sent, like that sort uh, Zinchenko sort of figure in midfield where like, He's not that dynamic on the ball. He he needs a couple of touches to adjust. Uh, so I think that's that, that's sort of a makeshift inverting right back that we have right now. If Zinchenko or Jorginho played, we could have seen players like either of those two take more risks to pass right through the lines, even if it's a risky pass. I agree 100% on that. Zinchenko and Gabi J were the two players I felt we were missing. I mean, Jorginho, obviously, but he was someone that we could have picked. Um, but yeah, those are two players that I, I did feel we were missing for different reasons. I think Zinchenko gives us that vertical access that we just don't have. For a while, he, he does it at a, pretty much a world-class level, to be honest. Um, and then Gabi J, I thought, does add that dynamism that I thought would have given us more than Trossard gave. And then obviously, out of possession, Gabi J is one of the best in the world. But Seb, where do you kind of stand on particularly the access to Trossard in the Porto game? Yeah, I I find it quite hard to really judge the performance of each of the front three, considering that sort of from a tactical point of view, the the issues they have are things that start way back, right? Like if we were able to sort of man- manufacture better moments in deep possession, that would then create more room for them or find them in better positions. I think in possession, Trossard couldn't really have done much more considering just the the, the clogging of, of the central areas by Porto. But I definitely take your point of him out of possession and the inactivity he has, especially compared to the other players we usually play up front, which just sort of indicates where this team finds its best moments. He sort of stands out as someone who, who doesn't back up the press as well as the others do. There, there is one thing I would sort of like to get, like to move on to, um, which is sort of non-tactical issue, but one that I found quite interesting in this game, which is the sort of underlying inexperience the squad has in the Champions League. Like it's clear that this is the first quarterfinal Arsenal have had in seven years. It's, it would have been 
Round of 16, even. <laughs> so, okay, has it, what, sev- seven years? A while. Yeah. yeah. It's been about 14 years since we've reached the quarters. There's a sort of historical precedent here, and I think there was a sort of palpable in inexperience in dealing with Porto's antics, as it were. We are a team that sort of focuses on building rhythm and building momentum, and Porto did an excellent job of completely breaking that momentum, buying cheap fouls, giving cheap fouls away. They completely ruined our, our set-piece play by just you <laughs> muddying the waters in the box so much that sort of things just weren't clear at all. And even the Porto goal they scored comes from a giveaway that a player in the 95th minute in a Champions League game just shouldn't give away at that point that that's game management that's just down to not being not knowing how to manage a, a knockout game that that way and i think kai havertz was the only player in the starting 11 that had played a champions league knockout game before the porto game that's nuts where where do you stand on that oh sorry what are your thoughts manus yeah i think uh the nerves like the, the soft factors are definitely there uh, I think the ball stayed in play like 57% of the time, which is the lowest. Yep. I think it was 51 point something percent. It was ridiculously low. And even in, in the Portuguese league, Porto are sort of known for this because there were stats going around. Like in their games, the ball is in play around 56, 57% of the time, which is basically like they were just breaking the rhythm of the game. And in the first, starting first five minutes, Rice got a yellow card. And we just couldn't control the ball. Uh, I think the pitch was way, way too fast in this game as well. I, I don't think we mm-hmm. were expecting it to be that fast. Uh, so it took us a while to adjust as well. And yeah, there, there was a there's an element of the soft factors as well, definitely. But like I think we could have done more in possession as well. Uh, Porto, like we were talking about their structure and sort of just to finish this section about their structure, they sort of got the numerical advantage in midfield uh, of a two flat center mids. They had three. So at times they pressed in a 4-3-3. Then when this ball goes back to the center back, they keep pressing and then push, 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 pushes back. I think that's where we could have baited them. And we did it twice, two or three times, which I noticed in the first half. We could have done that more, like just bait the pressing player to the center mid to go then to the center back bring them into one of the right-back or left-back zones and then play very, very quickly out and then to the other side. I think we do it twice. But then again, I'm like, just go, go, go. When you just like move the ball to the opposite wing, Trossard, once Trossard and once Martinelli, both uh, on the left wing, they had the ball and they just didn't don't go. Like, just go, dribble, 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 go. Uh, so I think execution, nerves, inexperience, them having a very, very good plan, um, it all worked against us, I guess, a little bit. Um, but I, I just want to credit to Porto. I think they executed very well. I, I credit to Porto from me as well, from Consistal particularly. Um, I want to ask, what did you guys think? Do you think the result was a fair one? Because I know a lot of people were saying it should have been a nil-nil. Yeah. I think it's one of those where if it was a nil-nil, you feel like fair enough. But I also think they were the better team. And I, I think they deserved the win, to be honest. Yeah. I think they created the best chances. I, I agree. They suffocated I, us. They had about three, two or three really good chances in the first half that could could have ended up in a goal, and I I think they threatened to a point where we just couldn't. And 
I think from that point of view, the results justified as such. Yeah. I think I think they sort of deserve to win in the end. Uh, but I think the the bad part for them is that they win one one nil. If I if I'm Porto and I play that game and I play that off the ball game that well, I would have tried to score at least one more goal. The thing is, though, I think a one nil is a pretty good case scenario. I think they deserved. I think they deserved to to win one nil, despite you know whatever they had, probably about one xg at the end of it. I'm not even sure how much we had. Not much. Um, but I think they deserved that. But I think part of it is the aim is to frustrate and get that potential goal. I don't think they to go for more. They would have had to kind of try to play us a little bit more where they open themselves up. And I do think this is why we'll talk about it at the end. But I think that one nil is a comfortable one for Constantine coming to us as comfortable as they could hope. I do think we're the better team. I think we should aim. We should be looking to beat them. And I think if we if we score early. You know, it'll be it'll be beneficial for one for us. But yeah, like I said earlier, we now have to score one goal to get to that even game state, and then we have to score again to get to a game state where I'm comfortable that we're going to that we have the game under control. So we kind of have to score twice. We're normally in these games that we've seen as one goal before we sort of open it up and become quite dangerous in open play. Now we have to score twice. And I think also that's where I, I that's why I mentioned the the sort of soft factor stuff because. Porto aren't going to come to the Emirates to just defend. They're going to break the rhythm. They're actively going to try and disrupt the game. And getting one goal in that game state to, to get it to an even keel, that, that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. Um, it's one I'm minorly worried for. Um, but I think we'll probably revisit how maybe we should aim to approach the Porto game. I think we've already kind of alluded to it. The, the return fixture, that is. Um after we've addressed Newcastle, but before that, we'll have a nice little five-minute break and uh, a Seb would call a sweet jazzy jingle, which I think Seb thought Tower said, and now it's a Sebism, and then we'll be back soon. So, yep, have a good one. And we're back. I hope everyone had a nice rest. For you guys, it was just a couple of seconds. I'm now just using Tal's phrases, but anyways, let me get into it. It's the other game that we that we played. It was a far more enjoyable one, it has to be said. Um, we we got to watch the greatest player of all time start for us, get a rare start, um, which we'll get into. But yeah, let me go through the lovely summary written for me. So in a complete contrast to the Champions League game, Arsenal blew away Newcastle as they suddenly remembered that they can, in fact, play very good football. Agreed, Manus. The script was set from kickoff as Arsenal won two back-to-back corners in the first minute, pinning Newcastle back. By minute 10, Arsenal had two shots and two high turnovers already. The first goal came from a corner which Gabriel headed at the front post and went in off Botman. That's 19 set pieces, the highest in the Premier League. I believe 19 came after Kivior actually, right? The Kivior goal. The second came just six minutes later when Jorginho played in a Martinelli, which was a beautiful ball, I have to say. A Newcastle ball watching. In brackets, it's Trippier. <laughs> As Havertz ghosts in to tap in the cutback. Second half saw us relinquish some of the ball. It's perhaps some fatigue set in and allowed for a whopping three shots from the opposition. But it was pretty much decided when Saka scored that brilliant solo goal, which was the most he's him moment I think he's actually had. Just the nonchalance of it, the celebration. It was just... that. I think that's Saka arriving 
Like, there's no... For me, there's no more arguments. The world-class stuff, the way he scored and celebrated that goal, it was like, the discussions are done now. We, we can stop making comparisons. Um, yeah, taking on Livramento, cutting inside and beating the keeper at the far post. Um, the game was set except Kivio scored again to make it 4-0. Um, heading in at the front post before we let Joe Willock score. Some hail and charity right there. And yeah, it really is Nico Yover FC. That is a quote-unquote from our friend Manus. But I'm going to move to Seb. Seb, we both love a certain player here. And we both, you know, took a lot of notice of this game. So can you take me through how the game really let's say, contrasted tactically to how we've been playing, and I think all of it centers around one man. Um, we, we sort of drew the comparison to Porto earlier, so I, I think it's, first of all, in, inherent to point out that these are still different dispositional opposition that we're facing here. We, I've sort of bracketed this in three different sort of forms of teams we play against. Though there's the low blocks that we can manipulate structurally. There's the mid blocks that we struggle against massively. And that's one of the things that Porto did quite well against us when they deny us that central access and sort of key in on the balls going into the wingers. And there's high presses that we can manipulate individually and by sort of coordinated movement, getting those third man combinations going and so on and so on. The Newcastle game fell from from that point of view, from a dispositional point of view, more so in line with the with the Liverpool game, where they went at us quite aggressively and we were able to sort of play through them, get get combinations going. This was one of the best passing displays we've had in a while, especially p- sort of playing deep around their their press, which one is sort of obviously related to Newcastle being in a weird position currently and sort of not having their press not as as functional as it was before. But also, we, we just took a lot of risks and we were able to to get those combinations going. And a lot of that has to do with one man in particular, um, and that's Jorginho, who sort of impacted this game both individually and structurally. Individually, he was just the passing hub for us. He had the most touches, he had the most passes. He He influenced the game in a way from those deep areas and what what is so tearing up yeah (laughs) what is so so good about him is this sort of natural appreciation of risk and tempo he he knows exactly when he has to circulate where he has to find the free man when to completely verticalize possession play is able to play those chip balls over the top like he did for the for the harvard's goal to martinelli he it's an interesting thing because he's been derided as this sort of sideways passer, but on on Twitter, I, I sort of found that people love him for his his vertical passing for Arsenal, and I think that both of these narratives exist sort of show that he's excellent at doing both, but is able to assess when each is needed in a case which sort of goes to show why he usually plays at around a ninety ninety two percent clip with with regards to passing. And what he also did for us was, from a structural point of view, we were able to play in a sort of 2-3-4-2, depending on where the ball was. Able to sort of outnumber Newcastle's front three, get a fourth player in deep build-up, and then move up, get wide into central positions to free up Saka at points, 
get Kivio into positions he's comfortable in. Much more of a back two in high possession as opposed to a back three, which we usually see. Yeah. Uh, which also led to a lot of wide combinations and sort of getting more people up the pitch, and that obviously helps in in those combinations. But yeah, I, I think the game as a whole is just a a revolvement around Jorginho and the influence he has on the team when he's able to play. So I also want to just touch on that. It was it was an interesting game also because normally what we've seen is is still and obviously this is what Arteta said a number of times is what he sees the long term future for Rice is as that six, and what we have seen in in recent Jorginho Rice sort of double pivots, you know appearances is that Jorginho is more of the eight if you will, but actually, what was it yesterday? It was very much yesterday at time of recording. It was very much Rice in that free eight sort of role, right? Which free being denominative factor here, he he was able to sort of drift around the pitch and make his influence known. I think it was Rice's best game generally at playing higher up the pitch, right? Yeah, and 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 I think it's an, it's interesting for a couple of reasons, right? Because I, obviously, I do think Rice still needs to develop a while. You guys know where I stand on this to become that six that we need. I think Jorginho really shows what you can do. When you have a little bit more understanding of pinning and where to make these passes and stuff, stuff, stuff Rice is still learning. But Rice is a dynamic. I mean, when when we were first getting links with Rice, I did think he might be an eight option for us because he offers so much. I think he's a very underrated mover, attacking mover of the ball. Also, just having that carrying ability where he doesn't have to kind of restrict himself gave us gave him a sort of gravity that actually opened things up for players like Martinelli and and habits in in different spaces um the one the one interesting thing is obviously what you lose when you put when you put rice further forward is you lose him as that one man transition control and i think if you remember sort of those early graphics from opta earlier on the season there was that belt of low pressure kind of the the second last belt which you just call the rice zone because it was just him and he was able to we could put pressure higher and deeper because we could just rely on rice to to dominate that zone. So obviously his ability defensively is huge, particularly in transitions. And that's something that we actually seeded somewhat this game. And I really liked how we went about it because it it allowed us to be really aggressive with him pushing high. And we were very aggressive in the first half an hour, particularly when there was a lot of energy that we basically suffocated them. But also then how we kind of adjusted is I found a couple of interesting things that I think worked quite well. I think it suited Kivio to be a little bit more tucked in. So in this two, three, both in the build-up, but also in transition moments, right? And also then by having Gabriel and Saliba closer together behind Jorginho, it left Gabriel with less of a cover centre-back responsibility that he has had to take on a little bit with with Kivio coming into the side at times, particularly with how we're using Rice, I mean White on the other side inverting and I thought that was a really nice way to kind of dominate the game having them closer together having our fullback slightly more tucked everyone kind of supporting Jorginho because the one thing you do need to do is Jorginho I think is very good at winning those second balls and stuff but he can't be that rice belt like rampaging across and and snuffing anything else so I think it was a really intelligent tweak that made a lot of that made a lot of sense in terms of defensive transitions and catching catching the opposition team high as well as it did in possession with how we'd use Kivio and and obviously how we've been using White and allowing Rice to move up and actually just having Jorginho in the side, which to my eyes, whenever Jorginho's playing, we look much better in our in-possession play. 
I, I really like that point you just made there. And I think, as always, it's a trade-off game, right? Like, putting Rice in the A, a allowed us to sort of use him in counter-pressing situations. And especially in that first half, the, the counter-press was just relentless and led to high turnovers that led to shots. And Rice was always involved in those situations. And, but then you lose him in, in defensive transition, as you said. But I think the point you made very well here was the, the Saliba and Gabriel um, dynamic, where Gabriel not being the cover defender allowed him to defend forward a lot and sort of make a lot of interceptions in the zone that Jorginho slash Rice would normally do. And you sort of leverage Gabriel's aggressive forwards defending to compensate somewhat for Jorginho's uh, presence in the six while then also having Rice in the eight. And yeah, that was just a very good move there. Manus, do you have anything to kind of add or, or say here? Yeah, I was just saying on Jorginho uh, that having him as a sentiment allows us to play Rice further forward. And that then means that you need to have the centre-backs closer together to have a compact less defence, right? Everything flows from one thing in the other. And just saying on Jorginho, he's the contrasting point on both these fixtures. He had 109 touches in this game, which is the highest touches in this game. And he was involved in every phase, uh, deep, mid-phase. Mid and then he is also underneath possession on or each wing. So if, if you're building on the left, he's underneath possession. And he's the one who's rotating the play. And we're, if, we're, if we're on the right side, he's again on the right side rotating position. Because then why Rice has dropped in from number eight slightly centrally to maintain the rest defense structures. So I think he, he's the one that it sort of he's dictating play for us a lot. And I think this is where, this is the big question that needs to be answered in the summer. Should Jorginho be extended one? Absolutely. He has to. He has to. Second, is Rice that number six that we imagine? And like, does Arteta really see Rice as the number six who can play through the lines and receive turn and then play around corners? These are questions I've been asking. So I'm interested where you, where you guys stand because you know that I have had... I think Rice could be. I don't think he is now. I think Jorginho just offers so much more in possession when he's playing in the six, then Rice does, like, infinitely more. And I think Rice is actually very good in the eight position. So that's why... And these have always been my concerns with us bringing in Rice. Rice is fantastic. One of our best players deserves to start every game. That's not the question. But in terms of what we get out of him, I think for a side that needs to dominate the ball, like, I can imagine using Rice in games against Liverpool and stuff where we need him to kind of clean up things. But against teams where we want to break down a bit more, I prefer Rice at... Taking taking him out of what I see as a position of maximum in possession responsibility, particularly under coaches like Arteta, right? And that is that sixth role because Jorginho just makes all these right decisions, has the technical execution that I think Rice has, but doesn't have implemented alongside like a tactical awareness yet. And that's why for now, I think, I, I do believe Arteta when he says, and, and, and Rice says it a number of times, that his long-term position is the six. That's the plan. But I don't think, like, if we're looking forward to the end of the season, I was watching that game and I was thinking, this is maybe our strongest 11. Maybe you can decide what, what we need at the back with Kivio, who's been great, by the way. But I'd be very, you know, open to the idea that it could be Zinchenko, it could be Tomiyasu, depending on what you want there. But the rest of the team, and then maybe Gabi J versus Havertz up front. But I really do think 
Jorginho just makes a huge difference for us, particularly in attending to the issues that we've had in possession and breaking down teams. No, he definitely does. And especially in the absence of Zinchenko, who is usually the one who's playing forward, right? But he's he can't be underneath possession on both wings because he's not a number six. So he needs to be on the left side to maintain the structure. And that's why Rice, uh, Rice is on the right side. So I'm always confused why Rice. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think it's a, it's a dynamic sort of thing where one player out then affects like it's a sort of a domino effect and you need to find the right balance. But in, in general, yeah. I think it's the debate is about having five players in the first line versus four players in the first line and sacrificing a, uh, a center mid for an attacker and vice versa in certain games. So that's the big, big ask or the big question that Arita needs to currently answer game by game. And again, when you look at how we played this game, Newcastle tried to do the same thing to us that Porto did, albeit they did not execute as well, right? Their distance, like they were probably a few yards deeper and their press wasn't as coordinated as Porto's was. They were also a lot a lot more willing to engage than Porto were, right? Like they were getting themselves into yeah. those those baiting triggers that we have where Porto just laid off us and sort of kept their structural integrity going. It is worth saying, I think their press, Seb, you, you mentioned earlier, but their press is a bit broken at the moment, particularly in terms of the midfield, it makes it porous. I think they've actually conceded the most goals since December, that more than any other team in the league, including Sheffield United, who are right at the bottom. So as much as we, we did well, I think, uh, this is also a team that has been has been struggling compared to how well they were doing at one point earlier in the season. But but I still think it's something that we've seen a number of times when Jorginho is, even if he's playing more of that eight role with Rice kind of being the pivot guy, which he is there for transition control, as far as I see it, um, the reason why it's not switched. But even even when that is happening, I think Jorginho just makes us much better at pulling teams apart. Yeah, and just to finish my uh, earlier thought, Newcastle again tried to deny the passes into the half spaces. But Jorginho, I think he played like five line breakers yeah, into the final yeah. third, into Odegaard, between those three players who's trying to deny the half-pace half passes. So you need somebody to take those risky passes on. And he he has the technical empathy plus the skill to play those passes and not just rifle the ball through that gap. And just the vision as well, yeah. to be able to see these things. Yeah. There's so many. They were, there were Even Saliba played a couple of line breakers in the exact same zone. Again, it comes down to execution, whether you're willing to take that risk or not. I, I generally just find the whole price thing fascinating, considering from the evidence available, I think it's safe to say that this wasn't the plan as such, at least for this season. And through Partey just continuing to not have hamstrings, Rice was sort of has sort of been forced into taking on six responsibilities earlier than I think was planned. I think that's fair to say. And I do think he he has improved greatly. I think if you contrast him to the start of the season, it's almost a different player in possession. But I'm still he he obviously still needs a lot of development, and I think I still maintain that if we were to maximize Rice, we we still want him in in deep areas, and we still want him as the sort of transition controller. But we also want to leverage his his ball carrying and give him 
less responsibilities in the possession. So I still think the future here, I think for maximizing him would be to transition into more of a stable double pivot in that zone and then sort of build the rest of the team accordingly, perhaps put a fifth player from from fullback in there or somewhat. Jeremy Frimpong's available in the summer zone. There, there are ways of structuring this team differently, which I think are able to be exploited because I think getting the best out of Rice would be rejinking this team somewhat into a double pivot. Can I ask a cheeky question? Go on. <laughs> Just because I think after now, they, we've seen him for a couple months now, and, and there was obviously after the initial excitement of signing him, and don't get me wrong, I know sometimes I'm seen as the... The Rice denier. I love Rice. I think it's fantastic. I just, I'm interested. Do you guys think Rice is in our top three players? Like top three best players. Don't take out form. We're not talking form. Do you think he's in our top three best players? Currently? Currently. Currently. Like current level, leaving away form, but I'm not talking potential, if that makes sense. Mm, no. You asked me this recently and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I I hate you for it because I think there's four players Answer that you just can't really. I, I don't think they're... I think Saka... Manus was brave. Manus came no. It's a yes, it's a yes no. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think Odegaard, Saliba and Saka is just... Saka is just ahead of him currently. Because I'm, you, I I'm want him too. to execute on the ball better currently. Like, just be that... I, I want to see if he can be the six or not. We've said that he will be in... Like even I've said that he might be, but he's 25, and this season I've not I've not seen a lot of progression from him in terms of being that six. Maybe it's an issue of like balancing, and we know that the dynamics of this season were supposed to be different with Party playing and Timber playing. So I'm gonna give it more time, but currently I don't think he's top three best players. You know, I'm I'm I agree with that. I think he's I think he's fourth. I think he's he's probably our fourth best player behind. Odogo, Saka, and Saliba. I think you're missing out some players. Whatever order you want to put them. I I think it's definitive that our three best players are Jorginho, Kai Havertz, and Bukayo Saka. (laughs) I can't argue with the Jorginho one. I I just took him away. I decided not to, you know, not to compare the GOAT with the rest of the players. But, but yeah. So so then, even even by that answer, he's not in your top three. Yeah. Yeah, just to quickly get back to that point, I I would agree that Erdogan, Saliba, and Rice are uh, Saliba, and Saka are probably the three best players in this team. But I think there is a fundamental point here that we probably aren't as good defensively and couldn't play the way we are currently playing and sustaining that sort of control without Rice playing. And absolutely agree with that. And that is a value to him, and that sort of almost gets him into that conversation. And I think if we win the league, he's probably going to get BFA Player of the Year. But yeah, the, the, the in-possession me, stuff me, is something... But that's, that's true of every... Yeah, go on. Uh, for me, that's true of all the players, though. If we don't have Saka, we're yeah. not in con- like conversation. If we don't have Odogo. And if we don't have... I think Saliba is just as important or more important defensively to us. To, well, I equally defensive. Point, yeah. Important defensively, I'd say. Yeah. Okay. One more question. One more question, because I'm still feeling a bit, a bit just, cheeky about be, it. Before you, before you ask that question, just I, I just <laughs> wanted to quickly get back to Jorginho. Um, I think it was Manus who who posed the question if he should be renewed, and 100 fucking percent he should be renewed. He is no doubt in my mind. He is so important to this team, both currently 
with what he can do. I think there was scope to use him more over the season, which we just have either ignored or his body has led him to not being able to play more than he has. That's for the coaching staff to decide. But he's also extremely important from a cultural point of view, right? Like he is the second coach on the pitch. He's someone who integrates the young players. He He's just an incredible guy as well as being an incredible player. And I I want him in this team for as long as his legs hold up. I agree with that 100%. I think with that, let me not ask any more provocative And he's married to a less. girl named Catherine, Sip. which is still fucking great. <laughs> the last regista by the British woman. All right. What was your cheeky question? The cheeky. Well, I don't think we're gonna. I was gonna say who who's more important to build around Odego or Rice, but that might have killed that might have killed Loken. So yeah, me, I think Loken would have one. a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's move back to the game because we are now c- crossing the hourish mark. Um, I want to talk about Martinelli. I think the way we played and built up and used space against Newcastle was far more. Um charitable not maybe not beneficial to to martinelli's game and he delivered by what i thought was a very threatening performance obviously getting a getting an assist as well and this is on the back of i think quite a lot of criticism despite me not thinking he's been that bad recently but i think it kind of did hit the porto game there was a lot of criticism and he did play poorly that game so i'm interested why you guys thought first of all how maybe for the listener how did the way we built really allow Martinelli to get a lot more narrow and be threatening with his runs. And then I'm also interested secondarily in really discussing Martinelli's season, like how much of what I think is he's obviously not scoring and and giving as much output that he's capable of doing and has shown last season even. How much of that is down to him or the role he's had to perform this season in in your guys' eyes? I'm not sure who wants to to volunteer answering that double-barreled question first. I'll go. Cool. I feel there's a two-way answer to this. The first problem there is just the structure uh, because we don't have a functional left center mid. Uh, and uh, last season was Shaka and Martinelli had 20 goals and assists in the league last season. He's currently on 8. So I don't see him crossing 15. Like He's not definitely not going to score 12 more. Maybe he's, he gets up to 13 or 14. But... That side has been slightly dysfunctional because everything flowed through Xhaka on that side. Like, he was like a ball magnet and used to go to him. Uh, but now we don't have that same kind of player there. And again, it goes back to the start of the season of how we actually, how Arteta probably imagined dynamics on that side to be. So he's sort of less involved. And there was this whole debate earlier where he's less involved in central areas, which I don't particularly subscribe to because his touches there in the center of the midfield are not the touches that I want to see from him. Like he can invert, lay the ball off and then run. But that's fine. Like that's rotational and that's build up play. It's what I'm interested in, like what he does when he receives the ball. He's just not receiving the ball a lot out out wide. And I'm willing to bet good money on the fact that because uh, Jorginho was playing and Rice was playing on that side closer to him, he probably had the highest number of touches in this game than any other game this season. And if anybody wants to look that up for me, that'd be great. But I, I think it'll be up there. So that's why he looked very, very good because he was more involved on the ball. So in general, I think 
that is sort of the reason that he's been a little behind Saka this season. But how do you think our structure is helping us access him more? And do you think that's something that we can replicate going forward? Or should replicate? So yeah, currently forward? our structure is helping. So in this game, because uh, we had somebody who can progress the ball and we don't need an extra player in midfield. In Rice. In, in, in Jorginho. And Rice is there oh, okay. closer to him because Rice is playing ahead of the ball in this game rather than in midfield, yeah. right? Um, and it was White who was situationally inverting, which is a separate issue, separate thing. But he had a lot more touches because of that. If there are three players underneath or around him who can rotate the ball and he can get the ball more on that side. So structurally, this game sort of was better for him than this season generally has been. Should I shock you, Manas? Yeah. He had less touches than he did in Porto. He had less touches. Okay. He was more involved. I think that's the main thing here. And I think Martinelli, more than any other player, is someone who's reliant on dynamism for his game, right? Like, Saka on on the wing is able to manufacture moments even from static situations where he's able to manipulate the fullback and so on. I think what... Martinelli suffered through most, especially at the start of the season when we were sort of content with letting teams sit in and play around their block, was finding him in static situations, having to take on a player or two from that side extremely wide and get into positions. Obviously, Xhaka's absence sort of extrapolates that fact out even more. I think saying Xhaka was everything flowing through him is a bit of an overstatement. But he's more of a natural passer than Havertz is on that side. And he's able to find those sort of first-time passes into Martinelli to then again create dynamic situations. I think having, yeah, losing Jack and also for a large part of the season being without Zinchenko, who's been sort of in and out, hasn't helped that as much and sort of led to us being a lot more comfortable giving the ball to our right-hand side where a lot of our best passes and best ball handlers are. Um... As well as that, obviously, in the last few weeks, there's since Dubai, I'd say, there's been a lot more emphasis on deep build-up and baiting principles to get teams out of their shape and create that space to then get Martinelli into more dynamic situations. And I think that has helped him at no end. And I think he's been quite good. It doesn't surprise me that the games where the criticism mounts up again comes against Porto when that exact access is being denied to him. and. He just isn't as multifaceted as someone as Saka is, who's able to individually create moments of brilliance. He's someone who is sort of reliant on on dynamism being created around him to to get him into his best positions. There's also a point here that um, the system itself has morphed that he's been able to get into central positions as well, right? There's a lot more rotation going on now. Um friend of the pod, Jake Fox, actually pointed this out. The box occupation at the point of Havertz's goal from near side to far side was Martinelli, Odegaard, White, Kai, and Kivior. Martinelli being all the way over on the right-hand side, then Odegaard, White centrally, Kai, and then Kivior. <laughs> so there's a lot more space as well to get him into central areas where he is able to affect play more. But I think the dynamism point is sort of the biggest theme of his season and what has held him back, especially in the first half of it. Yeah, I tend to agree with Seb. I also, I, I think, uh, and I maybe I need to be corrected by Seb this time, but I think 
did Jaka not have, if not around as many, even potentially less? He had a few more Uruguay touches per game, game than, last season. I th- I think he had about a, a few less touches than Odegaard per game. He's at Kai is, uh, Havertz is sort of. I think 15 touches per game behind him last season. So there's not that much of a drop off. Yeah. But there's a lot more going through him. And Shaka's obviously also been a lot more involved in wide rotations, getting Zinchenko into midfield, getting Shaka out and getting Martinelli inside. And that's sort of being lost there. A lot has to do with the capacity of the left central midfielder yeah. in terms of when he's receiving, what he can do to help access. And I think Manus is definitely right in terms of. Despite there being more or less touches, I think this was one of the games where we saw Martinelli more involved in in terms of the runs that he could make in terms of how he was pulling movers. And I think that's a huge part of Martinelli's game, right? And I think that's what we kind of... This is why it's sort of like a a, a bit of both, a bit of column A and B. I think Martinelli hasn't, act, hasn't had his best season in terms of the moments when he's been able to access dangerous areas it hasn't been as clinical partly because he's accessing it a lot less so he's less used to that and that's because of the tactical role even if he's receiving so many times a game it's just in this sort of which he's performed well as the sort of retainer of possession kind of almost like like a Grealish but without all the other things that Grealish can do he's performing a role that doesn't really suit him out wide and that's not the best use of Martinelli even if it's been helping the side but for us to hit that other level that we need to, we need to get more out of out of out of Martinelli, and I think we saw that versus Newcastle. Particularly, for what I wanted to get is, is with the usage of Rice and and having Jorginho as well. I will say it it allowed Martinelli and and Kai Havertz in terms of his movements and his intelligence of where he needs to occupy. Right, I think he can be smarter about those things than someone like Gabriel Jesus, who's very reliant on does well in helping with rotations, but always wants to be creating the space by having the ball at his feet to create for others, whereas Kai can do it in terms of holding his position. All of these things helped Martinelli get into these spaces. And, and what I'm kind of getting as, do you think this is something, if we look to, let's say, because I'm interested in the next Porto game, if we approach it, let's say with the with the team that I, personally, I would be very happy if I saw the team that we, the team that we saw lined up versus Newcastle, if we, that was the team we fielded versus Porto. I'm not sure if you guys would make any changes there, but I would be interested to see what we can get Martinelli doing then. Obviously, versus a very good defensive side, but now maybe with the structural and player role changes that can actually help him access more dangerous areas and, and get on the end of balls in more central areas and, and score goals and create assists. Yeah, I think earlier I was probably... Um, the fact why I thought he had more touches was because he had probably more touches in zones that I'm used to have seen him have more touches in. But in, uh, for the next Porto game, I feel you could ideally go with the same team, but uh, I think it's in another three weeks from now. It's Yeah, it's the 12th of March. Yeah. So, at, at two weeks, right? Three weeks. So, I'm guessing maybe Party will be back and Jesus will be good and perhaps even Zinchenko might Maybe be back. Zinchenko. Yeah. What would the team would you feel then? But I would definitely have one of Zinchenko and jo- or Jorginho in the team because we need that center progression because we know exactly how Porto might uh, line up and what they might try to do. So we need to push their line back, their mid-block. We need to push it backwards. And it wouldn't be the worst thing to play direct football. Uh, just go straight into the wingers from deep. 
from the get go and that's when martinelli can really exploit uh, the back line like if you can isolate him dynamically against a against a full back he can turn that full back in and out and we there were a couple of instances when he did do that versus porto at the end in the first half not at the end uh, it's just that he didn't come to anything uh, he put in a couple of pretty good balls but there was nobody in the box so in terms of that porto game at least i would have at least one of zinchenko or jorginho playing because we need line breakers we need somebody to play through the lines and take those risky passes on to be clear i was saying fielding the same team that we fielded versus newcastle so for me i i would play jorginho i also think if we it adds into the the experience point that i think you both brought up um versus porto is that actually having someone who know who has the nose who's been there before and Jorginho is that and and he played like what most of the Champions League games in the groups right at least four of them I think he, he probably started and we did very well we managed to control those games I think he would be a good player from that perspective as well as the tactical one which is something that I see as maybe the sort of tweak that I'd like to see Arteta have in going towards the end of the season I liked what I saw versus Newcastle and for me there isn't reason to believe that this was an only one game sort of thing even if it was very well suited to deconstructing um and taking and exploiting newcastle i think gabriel jesus is the other big uh player we could have for for porto because i think a there's another experience point there he's has an immaculate track record in champions league games but there's also a tactical point here in that I, I don't think Havertz's profile as a nine suits that game as much as Gabriel Jesus's, where when he's... N- w- let's let's contrast it with, uh, with Trossard, where as Trossard's a sort of systemical dropper who sort of drops out of the, back li- uh, out of the front line to, to get touches from a systematic point of view, Gabriel Jesus is far more comfortable getting into those deep areas and just affecting play by himself, getting those individual moments going and sort of having him there as another influence, creating with his dribbling, creating with this sort of dynamism is another thing that could really get that mid-block a bit more decongested uh, through there, yeah. Also, Party doesn't touch the pitch. Party doesn't touch the pitch. (laughs) Jorginho has taken his chain fully. (laughs) But yes, on the Gabby J point, I think I think particularly versus physical mid block sort of sides like that, Gabby J, you can do they can do everything right against us as they did. But Gabby J is the sort of player who has that strength, who has that technical like and that dynamism just to be able to receive, turn the team, carry forward. Yep, he doesn't you know always score when he get, gets in front of goal or whatever. He can be frustrating in that sense, but he can just completely break tactical plans set up to disrupt us in a way that I think. If Havertz had to play centre forward in that game, might not be able to do um, as much, at least not with the ball at his feet. So, so I would, I would agree. I think the way I look at it now is I'd play the team we played versus Newcastle, but hopefully Gabri Gabri J is is fit and I'd play him at centre forward. I think on that note, and looking at how long this pod is drawn on, as is customary when I'm on these. <laughs> these pods i think it is maybe time to close out i've really enjoyed this discussion with both of you um going over the two games and maybe the, the recent trends so yeah we'll leave it there and we will be back next week um yeah in terms of closing out 
Thank you to everyone who's been listening to us. Um, and please do check us out on Spotify and make sure that you like and subscribe or whatever, on whatever your listening platform is. Thank you to James Blake for the music, which you can also find him at JW Blake on Spotify. And yeah, hopefully I'll be back soon. But until then, have a good one.